Before we turn to the word of God, let me just say, <clears throat> long friendships are relatively rare in this world. Pastor Jim mentioned 1988. For some of you, you weren't even in this world. A lot of you here this morning, you younger ones. That's well over 30 years. I have personally no regrets that Pastor Jim came and labored here. Gives me a good excuse to come over <laughs> and him a good excuse to come and see us. But no, I have, I have no regrets. It was the right decision. And you have a good man, a faithful man, who has labored long among you. And you should be very thankful to God for that mercy. <clears throat> so, Ma and I have come near enough to the end of our visit here. We've been here a month, almost. We returned home on uh, Tuesday, arriving back in London early on Wednesday morning. It's been a joy to spend two weeks among you and to fellowship with you and to renew uh, acquaintance with uh, old and familiar faces and to meet some of you who I have never met before. It's always good when I go to a church and I see face, face, a church that I know and I see faces that I don't know. That happens when I go back to Maidenbow. Uh, I was there last uh, October and uh, discovered that I've, nearly half of the people I didn't really know. And I haven't been gone that long, which is a good thing. So I'm thankful now that I have this opportunity and privilege and responsibility of bringing the word of God to you. So let's turn again to the book of Revelation and chapter 1. We began to look at this section last Sunday evening, this vision of Christ that was given to John while he was on the Isle of Patmos. He wasn't a free man. He was a Roman penal colony. colony. And uh, he was there, as we read in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet 
were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. (coughs) And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the one who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let's pray briefly. Once again, our God and our Father, we thank you for the holy scriptures that are given to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask our God that as we gaze again upon his glory and his majesty and his beauty and his power, that our hearts may be moved. Lord, give us eyes to see and hearts to believe the things which we consider this morning, that Christ may be more precious to us and be exalted in this church, in our hearts and lives, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday morning we looked at verses 12 to 16. This vision that John had on the Isle of Patmos of the living, risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning is to look at two responses. First of all, the response of John to this great vision. And then secondly, to see how the Lord Jesus Christ responded to John because he dropped as one who was dead, having seen the glory of Jesus Christ. Now John was not unfamiliar with something of the glory of Christ. You remember in the opening words of John's Gospel, in that first section, he talks about the word that became flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace, full of truth. When Jesus did his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, his glory was manifested. When Peter, James and John went up on that mountain and they saw Jesus transfigured before them with the brightness of the sun, his clothes gleaming white. And they heard that voice out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my well-beloved son. Hear him. And what was their response? 
those three men fell on their faces. They bowed down, overtaken by fear. And then they heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ encouraging them. They'd also seen the risen Christ on a number of occasions following his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. They'd heard the testimony of the women who had seen the risen Christ and then they saw the risen Christ for themselves. The last time that John saw Christ was when he ascended into heaven. John, I would imagine, did not expect to see him again until he took his place in heaven. But there on the Isle of Patmos, this aged servant, this old apostle, probably the last living apostle, saw Jesus Christ in all his beauty and glory. And I want us then, first of all, to consider the impact of this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ on John. We are told very simply in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He was totally overwhelmed. It was too much for flesh and blood. Now he did not fall down out of respect. He did not fall down as one overcome with joy. He fell into a dead faint. He fell at his feet as one dead. The physical impact on him was tremendous. He had this overwhelming vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an awesome fight which filled him with a measure of dread. I would say a holy dread and a holy fear. It was a shock though to him. And yet it is not something that is isolated. It happened to others of the saints of God. Even in the Old Testament, when the Shekinah glory shone in the tabernacle, what happened to the priests? They had to get out. They could not stand and see the glory of God as it filled the tabernacle. And then there was Daniel. We referred to him last week in Daniel chapter 10 when he had that vision. He was stripped of all his strength. He said, my vigor was turned to frailty. I retained no strength. I fell in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And Isaiah was the same in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. John tells us that in John chapter 12. He saw the glory of Christ. He saw the throne high and lifted up. The train of the robe filled the temple. He heard the song of the cherubim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And what did he do? He cried out, woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The unveiling of the glory of the risen and ascended 
Christ. There amongst his churches leaves John as one who is dead. The sight of his hair, his face, those piercing eyes, the sound of his voice as many waters just simply overtook him and overcame him. Some people interpret what happened to John as being slain in the spirit. Now that is not a New Testament term. It's something that's become fairly common in charismatic and Pentecostal circles. People end up prostrate on the floor. Often pushed there, mind you, by whoever is leading that particular meeting. They fall down in a state of ecstasy. Sometimes mumbling strange words, sometimes writhing on the ground. I don't think that has anything to do with what we are seeing here. Yes, John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. But no one pushes him to the ground. He sees with his eyes in this vision the glory of Christ. And he's left as one who is dead. I don't think it was a pleasant experience for him. It was a shock to his system. He fell to the ground. I wonder if you have seen anything of the glory of Christ. Some people come to a church, a church of, they, want, they just want to go away feeling good. Or they want a spiritual lift. They don't come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to worship the triune God. They will say something like, well, Jesus is my friend. And that is true. Jesus said, didn't he? You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. But this friend is awesome, awesome in majesty, in purity, in power, and in authority. Notice his place. He is among the churches. He rules the churches. He is head of the church of Jesus Christ. It is his. He's redeemed it with his blood. And there he is in his undiminished glory and majesty. Have you ever come, having seen something of the glory of Christ, like Isaiah felt your sin, your guilt, your uncleanness, your impurity, your unworthiness as you stand in the presence of this Christ? Because that is the effect of seeing the glory of Christ. You see Christ for who he is and you see yourself for what you are. A miserable sinner who deserves the wrath and judgment of God. But John falls to the ground here not because of the wrath of God. Not because he feels a very real sense now of condemnation. That is not what is happening here. You may remember when 
those enemies came for the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came with their lanterns, their torches, their weapons. The crowd was gathering. Judas was among them. And the Lord Jesus said, who is it that you are seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I am, was his response. And what happened to them? They staggered back and fell to the ground. Just of those two words, I am. And later on in the book of Revelation, when the sixth seal is opened, it's there in Revelation chapter 6. Men and women are calling upon the rocks and the hills to cover them from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. They're they're shutting, they're, they're hiding away, they're trying to conceal the glory of God and they cannot do it. So they call on the mountains and the rocks to cover them. That is nothing like what is happening here. John is not under condemnation. This is the man, this is the man who leant on the bosom of Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. This is the man to whom the Lord Jesus on the cross entrusted his mother. This is the one who is loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he does not fall back and fall away from Jesus Christ. He falls at his feet. There he is, as it were, at the feet of Jesus Christ. How different then to those who were his enemies. So here is John. What can we learn from this? I think we can learn something very important. The love of God in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings to us and the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life in no way diminishes the glory of Christ. No way. In fact, it enhances it. Because it is this glorious Christ who gives us eternal life. It is this Christ who has washed us clean from our sins. But in our day and age, Christ is trivialized. People may say, well, you know, my sins are forgiven. But then the glory of Christ, where is it? A few weeks before I came here, I read... An advertisement in a newspaper, Christian newspaper. They were asking for a leader who could lead them in what was called casual worship. Informal and casual worship. I thought, there was a big crease on my brow as there is now. I thought, what on earth is That kind of worship. And when I came here this morning to engage in worship, and I trust you came in the same spirit also, it engages the whole of my being. My heart, my mind, my body, my voice, everything. 
When I go home after worshipping, I'm tired. I certainly am tired when I go home after preaching. I'm weary. Why? Because I've expended my energy. Hardly casual to means being sitting back in an armchair with your arms folded. There is no such thing as true, casual, informal worship. We worship God in spirit and in truth with our whole being. When we sing, we sing unto the Lord, making melody in our hearts. We sing with gusto. We sing with meaning and purpose. And where does that all come from? A sense of the glory of Christ and our own unworthiness. That's where it all stems from. We stand in the presence of this Christ. He is among us as the one full of glory and majesty and power. But he's also full of love and compassion, as we will see in a moment. That is Christ. Right now we do not see him in that glory which one day we shall see him. He is veiled from our eyes. But one day we will see him. John says that, doesn't he? In 1 John 3, we'll see him and we will be like him. And he's standing there in amazement. Behold, what manner of love is this? That we should be called the children of God. And that we shall see him, we'll be like him and glorified together with him. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all who are in Christ will be made alive. But each one in their own order. Christ is already risen from the dead in glory. We shall follow. We shall be raised from the dead. That's the great message of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But while we're in this flesh and blood, we could not cope with seeing the glory of Christ. That's why the Bible says, 1 Corinthians says... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You need a new body, a resurrection body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has guaranteed it. So John then has fallen before the Lord Jesus Christ, fell at his feet as one who is dead. But then I want us to look at the threefold response of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you consider his glory, what happens now is quite amazing. Breathtaking. The threefold response to this aged servant of Christ. We read, he laid his right hand on me. He laid his right hand. He touched me. And that means, I think it must have meant, if I stand aside for a moment, it must mean that he reached down to him. He was on the ground. He was as one dead. He reached down to him and laid his right hand upon him. Now the right hand of God is a symbol of power and authority. If you know the right hand of God in judgment is a fearful thing. Ask Pharaoh and others like Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib. They knew the power, the destroying power of that right hand. But this is a right hand full of tenderness, kindness. This is the hand that reached out 
to the leper, to the blind, to the mute, to those who were dead, like Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son. And he touched him. There was John on the ground and Christ bent down. And we have to say, what tenderness, what kindness of this one who is clothed in majesty and glory that left him as dead. This then, you see, was no crushing blow of judgment. John was not under condemnation in any way, shape or form. This was love and compassion that reached out to this old servant of Christ, suffering on the island of Patmos because he was a servant of Christ. This is the glorious, majestic and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He's your saviour and he's the same tenderness and kindness towards you and towards me. There is John in all his weakness, in all his earthliness, in all his sinfulness. And there is the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who is above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. We say, who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? But the psalmist goes on in that Psalm 113 to say, he humbles himself to behold the things on the earth. He raises the dust, he raises the, the poor, the needy, out of the ash heap. He raises the poor out of the dust. They may seat, he be seated with him, with princes. You can't put those two things together, can you, tidily in your own mind? They seem to be an utterly contradiction. The Lord who is the Lord of glory, yet he reaches out, reaches down, and condescends to touch his dear servant. There is something deeply endearing about Christ, isn't there? Deeply attractive. He has a magnetic appeal, especially to those who have been washed clean by his blood from all their sins. Here is something so comforted. Christ's glory is not diminished one whit, and yet that same Christ reaches down to us as we are in our sinfulness and in our weakness. And notice now a second response of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to John, few words do not be afraid you parents sometimes say that to your children they come to you in a panic they're crying their heads their eyes out shouting screaming they're hollering they're distressed what do you say to them don't be afraid calm down calm down do not be afraid. On the Mount of Transfiguration, that is precisely what he said to those three men, Peter, James, and John. Arise and do not be afraid. Did John recognize that voice? 
Did he remember those words? And did comfort and strength begin to reinvigorate him? I think that must have been the case. He had heard those words on several occasions. He'd been in the boat in the midst of the storm when he had calmed the storm and told them, it is me, don't be afraid. And these words apply not only to John there on the Isle of Patmos, but they apply to all of us in whatever situation we are in. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour, he says to you this morning, do not be afraid. All who suffer for the sake of Christ, has someone had a go at you this week and disturbed your peace, criticised you because you have made a stand for Christ? He says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. You endure hardship for the gospel of Christ. You're discouraged, perhaps. You're downcast. You have your fears. Perhaps you've dragged your feet this week. You feel weary in well-doing. And your sins, perhaps, have overwhelmed you. Satan has been hammering you, tempting you, trying you, battering you constantly, not letting you seemingly out of his hands. And what does Christ say to us this morning? Don't be afraid. It is I. It is me. The Lord Jesus Christ again then is speaking tenderly. Does he not love you? Has he not displayed his love as no other man will ever display his love? Has he not washed you from your sins in his own blood? Because this one who stands before John now is the one who was crucified on that cross for you to take away your sins, to remove the wrath of God that you justly deserved. He speaks peace to you. Do not be afraid. What reassuring words to John and to everyone who trusts then in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third response of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having touched him, laid his hand upon him, having reassured him with these words, do not be afraid. We have now a clear reminder of who Jesus is. They come to us as reassuring declarations, ringing affirmations as to who this Jesus is. He speaks to revive his servant. He speaks to encourage him. He speaks to comfort him. He speaks to strengthen him. John's work on the Isle of Patmos has only just begun. He perhaps thought before all this happened, he would die on the Isle of Patmos in exile. But no, we have this glorious extended Revelation, these visions that are given to John that he is commanded to write down for the churches in Asia and for us. And we have then this reminder as to who Jesus Christ is. First of all, we are not to fear. Why? Because he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. 
Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. <laughs> what do they mean? Very simple. Jesus Christ stands as the creator of all things. And he is the consummation. He is the last. It's the consummation. He is the end of all things and everything in between. What is it saying in effect? Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ is eternal. He's the eternal one. The creator of the heavens and the earth, the ruler of the nations, the one who will conquer and defeat Satan and bring salvation in all its fullness to his people. Christ is the beginning and the end of your salvation. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he who has begun a good work in you will do what? Bring it to completion. When? In the day of Jesus Christ. See? He's the Alpha and the Omega of your salvation individually. But we're thinking here on a big scale. Here he is among the churches. The seven churches. Not all of them in a very healthy condition. As you go on to read in Revelation 2 and 3. But he is the one who rules the church of Christ. And he rules the nations with a view to the glory of his Father and the salvation of all those who his blood has purchased on that cross. He will be there at the end of history. You will see him in his glory and all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Wonderful day. Glorious day. You long to see it? So he guides and protects his church. End of individual saint. Do not fear. Our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. But then we're not to fear because he is the one who is the firstborn from the dead. That's what he means in verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. Amen. A ringing affirmation. This is Christ, the one who lives. All doubting Thomases, take note. This is Jesus Christ who is alive. There are times when you will doubt that. Aren't there times when you doubt whether he will return? Because you don't see it with these two members, these eyes. This is something we behold by faith. We have to lay hold of this by faith. We believe the words of Jesus. Here are these ringing affirmations then which are the basis of our faith and our confidence and our hope. You remember when our Lord Jesus Christ spoke in John chapter 10. He spoke... That's the passage that declares him to be the great shepherd of the sheep. And he says there, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And then these wonderful words, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Take note of those words. You will never perish if you are a true sheep of Christ. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
That's his strong right arm again, his right hand again. And more than that, if you want a, a double guarantee, my father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. You have a double guarantee. What security we have. This is Jesus then who has been raised from the dead. He was declared with, to be the son of God with power through the spirit of holiness when he was raised from the dead. You remember what he said? Before he was crucified on that cross, is there again in chapter 10 of John. I have power to lay down my life. And then what? I have power to raise myself from the dead. I know the scriptures say that it was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus says quite plainly, and he's not contradicting his Father, I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This is your Savior. This is your Redeemer. And he's saying then here quite clearly, don't be afraid. What reason have you to be afraid if this Jesus is your saviour? This glorious one. He's reassuring John. And then there's a third thing. With this we conclude. Perhaps it's the most wonderful thing of all. He says, don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last I'm the one who lives forevermore. I have the keys. I have the keys of Hades and of death. I'm the one who has all power and all authority over death and Hades. Now, Hades here is not Gehenna. Gehenna is the place of everlasting punishment. Hades is the realm of death. And he is reassuring John that he has conquered death. He has been raised from the dead and he has the power. He has the keys of death and of Hades. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The promise that is given to Adam and Eve is a promise of the destructive power of Jesus Christ over the seed of the serpent, over Satan. And Satan has the power of death. And what is Jesus affirming then to us? I will demolish and destroy the power of Satan, him who has the power of death. It's there in Hebrews. And chapter 2. He has destroyed him because he has all power and authority over death and over Hades. We see that in the Gospels when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Everybody knew she was dead. He did the same with the widow of Nain's son. Everybody knew it was a funeral. They were going out. There was the dead body on the pallet as they were walking to bury that that body, and he stopped them. And he raised that young man from the dead and gave him back to his mother. And then, of course, Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days. 
And yet he speaks those words. Lazarus, come forth. There is the one who has the power over death. And what does he say to Mary and to Martha? Martha in particular. She has some questions. She says, well, I I know he'll rise again in the last day, she says. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to, who is to come into the world. She's confessing her Savior, her Messiah, the one who has come. He has the keys. He can lock the door when his people go and he can unlock the grave at the appointed time what a day the day of resurrection will be what a day that will be there's a place in london i've taken one or two of you to it it's called bunhill fields it's the dissenting burial ground outside the city walls of london john owen is there john bunyan is there thomas goodwin is there isaac watts is there They reckon that there are over 40,000 people buried in Bunhill Fields. That's going to be a very noisy place on the day of resurrection. (laughs) Can you imagine it? The dead in Christ will be raised. I can't imagine what it will be like. But I know it's true. John, Jesus is saying, John, my people, my sheep, they won't remain under the power of death. They will come out of their graves. They'll be with me. They'll be like me. And they'll be there forever and forever. Brethren, what have we to fear? What have we to fear if this glorious Lord Jesus Christ is ours by faith? You only have reason to be really afraid if you are not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you are in a dangerous place. The wrath of God abides upon the one who does not believe in Christ. But you can be set free from that wrath now. How? By turning to this Christ. All glorious. And yet full of tenderness. Love. Mercy. Kindness. Are some of you trying to run away and hide from him? It's vain. Adam and Eve couldn't do it in the garden. You cannot run away from the wrath of God. Don't run away. Run to Jesus Christ. Run to him. Run to him now. He will save you. He will wash you clean. Cast yourself as a lost, guilty sinner upon him. And he will save you. It's as simple as that. Even a young child understands that. Come to Christ. He is willing. He is able. Don't delay any longer. If you delay longer, you're not likely to come at all. What a tragedy that is if you do not come to Christ. My brothers and sisters in Christ, 
If you're anything like me, you feel your weakness every day. Every single day. You stand in awe and wonder at a Christ who still patiently cares for you, looks after you, and shows you his love and mercy. I want to close with some of the words of John Calvin that my wife and I read in a book called uh, Crucified and Risen, sermons on the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we must not, however, be filled with fear or think only of ourselves. That's the tendency, we look to ourselves. Rather, he said, we should look to our head who is already in heaven and we should say, weak though I am, there is Jesus Christ who is powerful enough to keep me on my feet. Frail though I am, There is Jesus Christ who is my strength. Full of misery though I am, there is Jesus Christ in immortal glory. All that he has, he will give me forever and I will share in all his blessings. Brothers and sisters in Christ, drink from that fountain. Drink every day from that fountain. There is no other. Take your fill and be full of faith and hope and love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you, acknowledging that you are the God who is glorious the one who is full of majesty and power and yet full of tenderness and love and patience toward us. Lord, we're not deserving of any of these things. We're vile, we're wretched in and of ourselves. But you've made us heirs together with yourself. You've made us your own children, sons and daughters of the living God. You have bestowed your grace and love upon us in a measure that we cannot really estimate or fully appreciate. But Lord, we pray, fill us with comfort and joy and peace in believing now this day. Maintain our faith. Keep us from stumbling. Present us faultless before your Father on that great day. For we pray in your name. Amen.